1997, Sports Illustrated assigned me to write a bunch of short pieces about different teams for its college football preview issue. This is what I wrote about the University of Tennessee. On the campus in Knoxville, this goofy thing called Peyton Mania has become a wee bit ridiculous. Peyton's back t-shirts, Peyton's back pictures, Peyton's back socks, Peyton's back hats, Peyton's back underwear, hair implants, blenders, screwdriver sets, nail polish remover, Peyton's back, the Spice Girls album. When it comes to hailed and hyped college football heroes, Peyton Manning is peerless. A couple of days later, I was watching SportsCenter when Stuart Scott basically read my lead as his intro, without crediting me and without crediting the magazine. And the reason I knew I'd been robbed is because most of my lead was a joke. There certainly were no Peyton Manning hair implants or Peyton Manning screwdriver sets. But one of Scott's writers clearly didn't get it. And as I watched the show, I actually wasn't pissed. I didn't even feel taken advantage of. Nope. Sitting there at age 25, having my words lifted for SportsCenter, I thought, wow, I've made it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Michael Kay, the New York Yankees play-by-play announcer, host of the excellent interview show, Center Stage, and author of a new book, Center Stage, which highlights some of Michael's exceptional interviews, which is why he's here today, to talk the art of interviewing. This is episode number 235. Let's sling some Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Um, of course. I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of really, really good interviewers. I'm a sucker for really good interviewers. I put you right up there. And I'm not just saying this because I'm looking at you. I put you right up there with the, with the people I consider just to be the elite interviewers. Thank you. What do you consider the difference between a sort of meh, okay interviewer and a really good interviewer? Well, I think there just has to be an innate curiosity where it's, you know, I just, you know, reading stuff off a card. And I think that listening is important too, because sometimes you'll hear people do interviews and they've got their questions listed and the guy could say, and, and by the way, I killed a family of six and buried them in my backyard. And they just go with the next question because right. they didn't hear what the guy answered. I think that's important. Another thing, and this is a pet peeve of mine. I can't stand when interviewers ask longer questions than the answers where the interviewer is trying to prove to the person. I know so much and I want you to know that I know so much. I just want to get in and get out. I'm not the star in an interview. The guy who's being, or the guy or the gal who's being interviewed, they're the star. And I want to bring it out of them. So the less I talk, I think the better. You go in, what kind of information do you have before an episode of Center Stage about the person and how much research is done? Well, for every, um, every guest that we have, Jeff, I'd say they probably send me six to 700 pages of, uh, of stories and stuff like that. Those are great during Yankee season when we're traveling because those are great things to read on the plane. You know, the plane ride goes a lot faster. And I've been told a long time ago, when you interview somebody in that kind of setting, you should know all the answers. Now, obviously, you should leave room for something that surprises you, but nothing basic should surprise you where the interviewee would say, you know, uh, I've been married four times. And you go, oh, really? You, know, you should know that. And just build off of all these things, you know. So uh, when we when we do center stage, like we have eight segments and, and we'll write down like a skeleton script. But I go off of that. You know, it's just it's there in case I, I need it. But those those questions are there just so it's formatted and we have the things to roll in. But uh, I just I, I try to over prepare for every interview. Wait, so I would think a bad show would be if you stick to your script. No. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I if I stick stick to my script, either the person was bad or I was bad. But, the, you know, we did we've done about 250 center stages and the worst one was Dennis Quaid. And he just he was giving yes and no answers. Uh, you know, when you do center stage, it's like an hour and a half commitment. It's an hour show. But with makeup, getting to the studio, the whole deal, it's about an hour and a half commitment. And he didn't realize that, which I think is nonsense. Obviously, as people had to tell him. So for the first two segments of the show, everything was yes or no, yes or no. And so we went to a, a commercial and I just leaned over to him. I said, you know what? I held up the cards. I said, I got thousands of questions. I said, the show doesn't go any faster if you say yes or no. 
you're the one who's going to look bad, not me. And he was like stunned that somebody spoke to him like that. And he got a little bit better. But again, I, I'm, I probably say that was the worst of the 250. Is there, wait, is there ever a moment when you're interviewing Dennis Quaid where you just want to be like, you know what? Fuck this. I have kids at home. I don't really need to be doing this. You could just, why don't we just not do this? That was my um, first instinct was to say, you know what? This is ridiculous, but I got to consider how much it costs for the S network to put a crew together. It's like a, it's, every show costs like $45,000. And, you know, they run every show hundreds of times to amortize the cost. And if I all of a sudden pitch a hissy fit and say, you know, I'm done with this, it, it, it kind of costs the company a lot of money. So that probably is a guardrail for me acting like an ass. I'm actually, I love this because obviously Dennis Quaid does not appear in the book. Um, Dennis Quaid <laughs> shows up. You have Dennis Quaid on your show. And you're probably psyched. And this is a cool interview. He's been in a lot of interesting movies. He seems like an interesting guy. He's had addiction issues and he's had highs and lows. And how long into him being there are you aware this is just, this is not going to work? I'll tell you five minutes before the show. You know, I never go in and talk to the guest. I'll just say hello so they don't see me on stage for the first time. You know, he was there to promote the movie The Rookie, if you remember the Jim Morris story. Of course. And, um, it was th three or four days after Meg Ryan left him. So I'm a newspaper writer at heart. I mean, that's what I started. And the Disney people that were with him told our producer, he can't ask anything about that. So my producer told me in the control room, I said, well, I'm asking. He goes, they said they will pull him off the set. I said, well, how great would that be? Would that be great TV? No, no. And it, Jeff, it's a game that you play yeah. because when you have a show like this, you need stars. And in order to get stars, you have to have their publicist on your side. And if you burn somebody like that, you're in trouble. You'll never get that publicist to bring you anybody. They won't trust you. And they'll tell their other people they're all small circle. And I just, uh, I was so angry, but I knew right then it was going to be lousy because I, I don't want an interview with any kind of restrictions. And they gave me a restriction that I thought, wow, let's talk about the fact that you know, Russell Crowe just stole your wife, you know, and they wouldn't let me do it. I told I'm, I'm with you as a journalist. My, I'm, I'm going right for it. Is it a fair ask for his publicist to say, look, this guy's going through a really tough time, blah, blah, blah. Could you not ask about his divorce? If they did it like that, it's a fair ask. But laying down the law and say, if you say this, he's coming off the stage, that rubbed me the wrong way. But most of the guests that we have there are there to plug something. I get that. Mm -hmm. But the whole show is about the arc of their life. And if you're going to leave out that your wife just left you for Russell Crowe, you're kind of leaving out a very important arc. So that bothered me. I said, it's kind of an incomplete show. And that show didn't run that often because the thing that saved it, Jeff, was like for the final two segments, Jim Morris was there and he joined Dennis Quaid on the stage. And that that was the saving grace. It, all, it made the show watchable. But up to that point, after that, the second commercial, when I leaned over and told Dennis Quaid that he was ticked at me. I wasn't thrilled and you could just see it ooze off the TV. You know what I need to watch when this, uh, when this yeah, you're going to go YouTube it. <laughs> Did you see the movie before the show? The rookie? Yes. Let's say you absolutely hated the movie. I mean, it wasn't a great movie. It was fine, but let's say you hated the movie. Are you allowed to bring that up in an interview when the guy is promoting the movie on your show? I don't, I don't think that would be fair. Uh, I probably, I mean, I would I'd have him promote the movie. But as I said, the, the whole purpose of the show is to you know kind of be a biographical arc of their life. I'd let him pump the movie. I mean, there, there are things that, you know, we've had on that, that people were pumping that I loved. And you could just sense the way I'm talking about it and then things that I don't like. And I'm just kind of lukewarm about it. But I'm not going to say, by the way, that movie really bit. That would that would be that would kind of be tough. Wait, you, so when I was a kid, my dad always used to say, someone's an asshole to you. And you say, well, you never know what they're going through, right? You never know what their day was like. You never know what life is like at home. Could we theoretically chalk up Dennis Quaid's assholeness on your show to the fact that his life was crumbling apart and give him a pass? I guess you can, but uh, I never ask anybody for anything that I don't ask of myself. And I don't want to sound all self-righteous, but uh, I remember I was in... Um, the hospital uh, and my mom was in the hospital and we were around her bed and she passed away and I was walking out of the hospital and there was a whole family that didn't know that I just lost my mom and they were big Yankee fans. 
and they're all over me and taking pictures. And why should I impart my sadness on them? You know, I think there's ways to compartmentalize. I hate when people say, well, I was acting like that because I had a bad day. Well, you don't have a bad day because of that person. So I didn't want that person's interaction with me to forever be bad because my heart was broken. So again, yeah, I guess you could give them a pass, but if I can, if I could deal with the death of my mom and still be nice to people, I, he, if it was that, if it was that tough a thing, Jeff, I guess he shouldn't have done the interview. I always tell young journalists, if you gave me the choice, if all the, if the, all the world was even, and I could interview Mike Trout for an hour or the construction worker down the street or the dentist who pulled my molars or blah, blah, blah. I'm not picking Mike Trout. I'm going with the construction worker. I'm going with the dentist. Would your interviews be more interesting if it was just this week we have the construction worker, John, this week we have the so-and-so as opposed to people who are constrained by the boundaries of sports. Um, it would be different. I don't know if it would get the same audience, but it's funny you mentioned that because I've always had a dream show on my head where I, you know, my working title and I've never been able to do it. And I probably won't, you know, what's your deal. I want to go up to the person who's lying on the floor in Penn station. How did you get here? How did it happen that you got here? You know, when I was a little kid and my family would be driving around and we'd look up at a big building, an apartment building, I'd look up and go, what's going on in the 18th floor? I mean, what are those people doing? How'd they get there? What's their life about? And, you know, you, you asked earlier about what makes a good interview. I, I just have an innate curiosity about things. Like, I, that's why I was probably a good date because I never talked about myself. I just was interviewing the, I wanted to know about the person. I mean, I'm meeting a new person in life. I, and sometimes you find out really interesting things. So I think that show, I'm probably getting too old to do it, would probably be a great show. What's your, you know, what's your deal? Wait, do you get this? I get this from my wife all the time. We'll have someone coming over and she'll say, don't interview him. Like, don't, don't make an interview. Like, don't make an interview. You, you interview people too much. Do you get that at all or no? I, I just, <laughs> I get from my wife, try to act interested because I, for them, I mean, I know it runs contrary to what I just said. Like, I'm not like a people person except for my friends and stuff like that. And like, if somebody's coming into my house and my wife like set it up, I'm probably like bored out of my mind and don't even want to deal with it. So she just says, try to be a human being. So that that's my instructions. Wait, the worst is this. I got this yesterday. Some, uh, someone I work with is like, or someone I know is like, I have a friend, you would love him. He loves talking about sports. Would you guys be willing to have coffee? You know what my answer is to that all the time, Jeff? I'm good. You know, I'm 60. <laughs> I've got the friends I need. I'm starting to prune now. I don't want to add. So I should say no. That's a big no. <laughs> yes, say no. You don't need that. Yeah. You're writing uh, books, doing podcasts. You don't have time for that. Yeah, fair enough. One of your interviews I found fascinating is you had Joe Montana on. And the reason I found it interesting is because through my life, I would say Joe Montana is on the short list of be warned, he's kind of boring or be warned, he's not really going to say that much. And actually, when I read the transcript of the interview, it's interesting. It's some of the shorter answers are Joe Montana's in the book of different guys. Right. I'm sure you knew that too. He's not a great talker. He's not super elaborative. When you have someone like that, when you're going in and you're interviewing someone and you know they're not super elaborative, are there tricks to sort of pry them open? Well, even if it's somebody who's, you know, voluminous in the way they talk or Joe Montana, what I try to do, and if you watch all the center stages, the first segment is not as good as the, the last five because it's kind of a feeling out thing. So what I, what I try to make it do is become a conversation because when people are in an inquisition, they lock up. They feel like they're being, you know, pressed against the wall. And I never want the interview to be that. So it just becomes so much better when they're just talking and they, they forget the three cameras and, you know, the 150 people in the audience, they, they just talk. And the greatest compliment that I get, and I've gotten it from some guests is that that's the best interview I've ever done. I didn't even realize I was being interviewed. And the guy, uh, strangely Snoop Dogg said that. He said, for shizzle, this is the best interview I've ever done. You got me to say things I never thought I would say. And that's like the height of a compliment because these guys are like professional interviewees. You know, they get interviewed all the time. And if you could break through and just have them feel like they're sitting down and having dinner with you, I think you get more out of them. All right, but easier said than done. How do you, you do have cameras all around. You have an audience in front of you. They know what they're going to say is on TV. How do you actually get people to relax? 
I, I don't know. I've been told that I have that that way about me where where people just feel comfortable after a while. They don't feel like I'm Mike Wallace, which isn't a bad thing to be, but um, that I'm not grilling them. And also, this isn't a gotcha show. You know, we're not trying to get a snippet that we could get hits on on social media. This is about let them tell their life story. And after I, I don't know why it seems like most of the guests just after a while, they feel really, really comfortable. And, you know, Paul Simon after he was on, that was like one of the ones where I was like in awe, you know, you're sitting like two feet from Paul Simon. He's strumming a guitar and he's going through everything that he, you know, what was he thinking when he wrote Mrs. Robinson? And he said, Let, let's try to do it again. I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'd like to do it again. I said, you mean do it over? He goes, no, no, let's do another one. He says, just have them call me. I'd love to do it again. So that's kind of neat. Someone sits down and you don't know them. They don't know you. You barely introduce yourself before the show. As a print journalist, I always say, like, you got to throw some softballs early on. Like, I would never start with, obviously, why'd you kill your wife? It's, right. oh, you're from Gary. I know a friend of mine's from Gary also. Like, but you can't do that on TV in the same way. So how are you starting? Like, what is the process of soothing someone into the interview? I just think that if you show interest in what they're saying and – most stars, Jeff, and you probably realize this, they kind of like talking about themselves. Yes. And if you show a sincere interest, and I do have a sincere interest in everybody's story, even if they're a jack wagon, I want to know their story. I, I kind of think it's neat. To, uh, I don't care about my story. I've, I'm living my story. I want to know other people's stories. And I think that people get a sense of that, that I'm really engaged. It's not like I'm sitting there because I have to sit there. I get paid by the hour. I, I really enjoy interviewing people. I think maybe that comes across. I mean, I don't, I wish I had a better answer for you. Like it's some chemical formula. It's just that I'm interested in people and I'm interested in stories. And I think they sense that. And they also sense that it's, it's not a gotcha thing where you're trying to get them to say something bad. Now, they, sometimes they do say stuff that's re really newsworthy. We've had that, but they do it organically where I'm not like, you know, I'm not, it's not an inquisition. If someone says something really newsworthy, do you need to sort of keep a poker face as opposed to if, if someone says something, blah, 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 and you go, whoa, I never knew that, blah, blah, blah. Is that a almost like a, a red light for them to stop or am I overthinking that? I, I don't like, you know, sit up. I'll kind of lean forward. I mean, that, that my body language is telling me, oh, give me more, give me more. And I do that sometimes, too, when I see people start to cry. You know, you don't want them to cry, but you don't want to stop because it makes for great television. So you just let it breathe a little bit. And you don't, if it's, if it's something where they're going someplace that you know is going to be something hot, don't just jump in with the next question right away. Just let it, let it, let it sit for a beat and then follow it up casually. So they don't think, you know, uh Oh, I just did something wrong. My favorite is when someone says they start crying and they go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you're thinking, no, it's really good. And Wait, so the funniest thing is like, I, I asked, Larry David, who I've become friends with because of that show, I was getting into the, you know, trying to get into his emotions. And he just looked at me deadpan and goes, you're not getting me to cry. Stop trying. I mean, like he, you know, he, he knew and he was just that show was so great and so funny and people loved it so much. But when I started asking him things that some people would get emotional about, he goes, nah, not happening. Did you think and he was I, going there? He was he, he, he was saying like stuff about his childhood and stuff like that. And, you know, his struggles before Seinfeld hit where he was a, a limousine driver for, you know, an older woman. I said, well, this is really heavy stuff. And but no, he wouldn't crack. Well, you had um, you had Bill Russell on and you wrote in your introduction about the Bill Russell interview, how you were genuinely nervous about Bill Russell. And I think we've all heard if you work in this business, he can be very tough and very gracious. It kind of depends what you get. And the interview was fantastic. And you said early on in the interview, you asked, um, talk to me about when you knew that you wanted to play basketball. And in print journalism, when I hear reporters say, talk to me, talk to me about oh, I hate it. Hate it. it. Is it OK in this format or is that a slip up? I usually don't do it because I, I just uh, it makes me vomit when I'm like in, a, in the clubhouse and people go, tell me about. No, no, no. Ask me a question. Don't tell me about. But since this is a conversation, if I was sitting with him in a restaurant, I go, hey, tell me about when you. I don't think it's terrible in this kind of format, but as a, as a newspaper, I, I don't think I've ever, ever asked that question as a newspaper writer. Tell me about what happened in the, in the fifth inning. You just, Oh, well, you, you got thrown out of second base in the fifth inning. Why? 
you know, what were you thinking there? But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a, a, a terrible sin in, 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 in that setting. There's a moment. I don't know if you ever saw this when Pete Manning, some reporter said to him, talk about that throw. And he goes, do you have a question? And the reporter goes, yeah, well, tell me about that touchdown throw. And he goes again, yeah, right. I know. But do you, do you have a question? It was the only time I ever saw an athlete actually call out a reporter. For- yeah. I, you know, my, my daughter's eight and she used the word cringy. It's cringy. Yeah. When a reporter that you're not prepared, you don't have a, you don't have a question. The people that usually do it, Jeff, are the people with, that trying to get tape. Yes. You know, they're, they're just waving the microphone. They're just trying to get a sound bite. So tell me about that home run. Well, what about it? What do you want to know? I, uh, newspaper writers are less apt to do that. You had Mike Tyson on. It's uh, it, it might be my favorite episode you've done, actually. And uh, That's one of my favorites. Oh, it's so good. And you wrote in the intro in your book about Tyson. You said the show is set to tape at 10 a.m. and Tyson was late. He left us waiting for over an hour before he and a couple of friends strolled in. No harm, no foul. It would just cost yes more money to keep the crew longer. But after the world famous fighter got there, he and his buddies disappeared into a dressing room. I was waiting down the hall and soon knocked over by the incredibly strong odor uh, down the room. I naively shouted, what is that stink? Jeez, it smells like skunk. It's brutal. One of our production assistants raced down to where I was standing and put her finger to her mouth to shush me. I said, what's wrong? And she whispered, that's skunk pot. He's smoking hot in his dressing room. Which is awesome. You find out your guy is like high during the interview. Are you, do you view that as an opportunity or are you like, God, this guy's not taking this seriously at all? Um, I, I, I didn't get the sense that he wasn't taking it seriously. I, and I don't look at this as an opportunity, but I, I think it opened him up a little bit. And there's a side story to that, which I found out after I wrote the book and it just kills me that I didn't know. So that interview was like so intense all these emotions banging. He's crying. He's laughing. He's like threatening. He's like, it was, it was almost like I, I was sweating at the end of the interview. I felt like I had boxed him and the people in the audience were sitting on the edge of their seat. So the show runs on yes for the first time. And Mike Tyson is home and gets a phone call from Spike Lee. He said that what you just did, that's a Broadway show. Wow. And that's what they turned into Mike Tyson's one Broadway show off that. And I mean, I'm, I'm proud of that, but you know, where's my cut, Jeff? I never got a cut, but it, and, you know, it's, it's become very lucrative for Mike. You know, he does that in Vegas. He does that in residencies. And I saw him on Broadway. He was great, but that, that kind of got spawned off. It was like the, the Joni love Chachi of my happy days. First of all, <laughs> I love Joni loves Chachi. So much, right? <laughs> second of all, is Tyson a great interview or a horrible interview? I think he's a challenge. You got to, re- it's almost like holding on to a, a, a helium balloon. You don't want it to just go away, but I think there's so much there. And I mean, he's so emotional. So I would lean towards saying he is an excellent interview, but it can go wrong in a hurry. You say you have to kind of hold on almost like a ball in a way. Like you got to, some guy is signed sort of blah, 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 and he's here and he's there and he's there. How do you push him back to where you sort of are trying to go? You just, you got to nudge them. If you push them, they probably resist. And he, he just went all over the place. And like I said before, like I map out an interview and like, you know, segment seven is supposed to be this. And all of a sudden he's going into a segment seven stuff, but he doesn't know supposed to be segment seven. So I've got my producer in my ear go, bring him back, bring him back. So you've got to like bring him back, but not stop him from the role that he's on. So it becomes, it becomes like a boxing match. It becomes a real, uh, a control thing where he's going someplace you don't want him to go at that point. You have to bring him back. But sometimes, even if he's going into segment seven and segment three, I let him go. I mean, let the people who edit the show deal with that because if he's willing to go there right now, we'll find something else to do in segment seven. So it's just a challenge because he the, he doesn't have a governor. So you've got to almost serve as a little bit of his governor, if that makes sense. The first interview you put in the book is A-Rod. I remember a long time ago, a colleague of mine named John Wertheim, who's also a writer, he had to go to Texas and interview A-Rod when he was at the Rangers. And he was listening to um, another reporter. I think it was Jack Curry, actually. Interview A-Rod first. And he's listening in from a side, and A-Rod's giving these great answers to Jack Curry. And Wertheim's thinking, wow, this guy's really good. And then Wertheim goes to talk to him, and A-Rod gives the exact same answers, like verbatim. Oh, man, that's a really good question. The thing is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, he obviously is a very, can be a very canned performer. When you're interviewing him and you know he's super polished or you have anyone who's super polished, is it a struggle to get through the polish? 
Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I've always said, I don't, I've said this to Alex, because he, he didn't have a dad growing up. He wants everybody to like him. So he, he's a, a shapeshifter. He kind of feels you out and sees what you want. And I tell him, I, don't give me what I want. Tell me what's real, you know? And that interview was done when he was still with Texas, Jeff. And it was before the world exploded for him. I wish I, you know, I, I'm, maybe we'll try to get him again somewhere down the line because there's been so much that's gone on. But um, I just put that in because I, I, I wanted to see if any of the answers foreshadowed some of the stuff that was coming up and how it made him look. And, you know, that's why we put in Parcells because I asked Parcells six separate times in that interview, are you ever going to coach again? And he said no. And then two months later, he took the Cowboy job. So I just I, I think that's kind of fun to look back on. Wait, so you're from the Bronx. You went to Fordham. Mm -hmm. You're a New York guy, blah, 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 blah. You get hired by the Post in 1982, mainly college basketball and the New Jersey Nets. Right. Did you know what you were doing? Well, I got hired first to um, as a clerk. So I was uh, filing pictures and doing agate, racing agate and all that stuff. And I, I got to tell you, we grew up poor. I grew up in the South Bronx. And that was a union job, the clerk job. I, I think it was $26,500. And that's more than my dad had ever made. I mean, I thought I was in hog heaven, but I still had that. In the, since I was nine years old, I wanted to be the Yankee announcer. But back then, I kind of sounded like Vinny Barbarino. Yeah. So I, no one was going to be hiring me to do on-air work. So then I started to think, I've got to get to be the Yankee beat writer. So I, I wrote in college. And I, I've always said, if you read my stuff, I'm not a great writer. The, 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 my strength was – I at the risk of sounding, you know, like an ass, I was a great reporter. I could dig stuff out and I could get the words down in a hurry. I mean, I once wrote like a 2000 word story in like 11 minutes. I could type fast. As soon as it came into my head, it was, and you know, and I let the editors do their thing, but uh, yeah, I knew what I was doing. Uh, again, it was that curiosity. I think that allowed me to be a pretty good beat reporter. And I, you know, when you're working for the post, you want to break stories. You're not, you're not Hemingway. So I think that I fit in perfectly for that. And I had an editor back then, Jeff, uh, the, the sports editor of the paper, Greg Gallo, oh, yeah. who like he rode you like you would not believe you were being ridden. And it was all about you got to work harder than the next guy. You got to be there later. You got you to be the last question. And like to this day, I hear his voice in my head and I'll never phone in a day of work just because of, you know, my dad and my mom always said, never cheat anybody if they're paying you. And Greg Gallo always saying, you got to work. You got to work harder than the other. Um, you got to work harder than the other writer. So, you know, they, at the post, they pushed you to break stories. You grew up a diehard, diehard Yankee fan in the Bronx. Then you're yes. covering the Yankees. Like you were a diehard Yankee fan covering the team. Not only were you covering the Yankees, you were covering the shitty Yankees. Like they weren't even good. Mm -hmm. Stump Merrill. Stump, yeah, the Stump Merrill, little Bucky Dent in there. Like really mm -hmm. bad yep. Yankees. In fact, I, I was reading a lot of your clips because I'm researching a Bo Jackson book. And there was a, you were writing about Bo Jackson when he came to Yankee Stadium and the whole Bucky Dent and Stump era. Was it easy for you to set aside any sort of Yankee fandom and just be a hard-nosed beat writer? Yeah, it was, it was, it was easy. And I'm going to tell you why. And, and whenever I tell the story on the radio show, Don LaGreca thinks I'm out of my mind. I was such a big Yankee fan. So I started to root for them when I was nine. So that was Horace Clark, Jerry Kenny, Celerino Sanchez, uh, Ron Bloomberg, Gene Mike. I mean, that was the team. Ron Woods, Roy White and Bobby Mercer. And then Thurman came around. And so I lived and died with them. There were years that I, I listened or watched every single game. My parents thought there was something wrong with me. And I remember when they won in 77 and I'm sitting there in front of the TV and I go, OK, what's in it for me? Like, I, I didn't get a ring. I <laughs> I didn't get to pour champagne on anybody. So I was like this really rational lunatic where, I mean, I, I love the fact that people are so fanatic about sports fandom. And we get that on my radio show all the time. But I just had that epiphany of, okay, that's it. So it was like pulling the Band-Aid off. And so when I became a writer, you know, I, I was just a journalist at that point. No, it's like the may you be damned to get what you wish for. Like, you got it. Yay, we won. Yeah, I was happy, uh, but I wasn't as happy as I thought I'd be. When you're covering really, really shitty baseball teams, as you were, and Stub Merrill, for people who don't know, not the, be not the best manager in the history of Major League Baseball, um, but a nice guy. Did um, And also given a bad team. 
Big ever in a very bad team. Uh, and a long time minor league manager who actually had good run in the minor. So you're right. Yes. Um, when you're covering really shitty, shitty baseball teams day after day, is it more fun or is it more awful? I think for a tabloid reporter, bad teams are probably better, Jeff. I think more stories come out of bad teams. People complain. People are unhappy. If you're not playing on a bad team, you know, you call a writer over and go, can you believe I'm not? I mean, you get better stories. It, it's the worst team to cover is the 81 and 81 team. That's yeah. like covering gray. Right. But if a team is God awful or a championship team, those are those are the, the two things you want. February 24th, 1989, a simmering Dallas Green issued a stern warning to Ricky Henderson yesterday as he dealt with the absence of his superstar left fielder for the second straight day. Quote, I firmly believe that one man that does not win a pennant in today's baseball, Green said, if I truly believe that, then Ricky Henderson is not going to run the Yankees in 1989. Dallas Green is. Translation, if Henderson continues to buck authority, Green will make life miserable for him. First of all, that's freaking great. That's really good. Um, <laughs> I, I, a friend of mine, Howard Bryan, is actually writing a Ricky Henderson bio that comes out uh, next year, which I'm very excited for. What was it like covering Ricky Henderson? It was weird because he, he kind of spoke his own language. You know, he was like, he's a different dude. He, he, you know, usually you could tap into what a guy's about, what, what a guy's thinking and maybe go along those lines of, and you just never knew where Ricky was on a day-to-day basis, not physically, but mentally and like esoterically. I just, he was strange and he's a hall of famer, Jeff. And I actually believe he's one of the most underrated players that ever played because the, he was just, on another level of athlete. I mean, he, he had a body that it didn't even seem like he worked on. He could do anything. He could have hit 50 home runs if he chose to do that. And instead he became a base dealer. He was amazing. And he was fun to cover. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and uh, she's leaving for college soon. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in Royal Retro's ads. Why don't you give him a little break, Casey? Oh, you zip it, Mom. Mrs. Schuster was my kindergarten teacher, and she called me Cassie by accident. And that was when my parents drove all the way from Tama Road for the class play. And did I cry? No, no. Yeah, no. And do you know why? No. Because there's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. There's no crying in a Royal Retro's ad. No crying. Another story that I just, I just love this. January 23rd, 1991. The Yankees unveiled, unveiled more than $26 million of flesh. All right, Michael K., here's a trivia question for you. When they introduced their four free agent pitchers yesterday at Shea Stadium, blank, 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 and blank, all braved, freezing cold to meet New York's media. Who were the four pitchers? Scott Sanderson? Yes. Dave LaPointe? No, I'm sorry. Steve Farr? Steve Farr. I can't remember the other two. It would be the Mike Witt and Tim Leary. <laughs> Where the four Yankee wow. pitchers brought in different world. How was it a different world? They were picking at the edges of the buffet rather than go for the filet mignon and the Chateaubriand. And, and you, you know, you, you think of the Yankees, the Yankees get whatever they want. But back then they didn't. They had to pick and choose. And, and, and Gene Michael very slowly started to bring in guys that might not have been that highly thought of in terms of like talent. But he knew that they were good clubhouse people like Spike Owen and Mike Gallego and a Steve Farr, guys that were gamers. And he picked and choose, and he felt that he and Showalter felt that if they got the right people in, then they could take the next step and get the star people. And the, the first star person they really got was Jimmy Key, and that was only because they struck out on Greg Maddox. But it was a slow process where they, they could not shop at Neiman Marcus. They were kind of shopping at Kohl's. I kind of like Kohl's. Probably better bang for your buck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier that you uh... – when the, the Yankees win the World Series and now it's 77 or 78, whichever, 77, you're like, oh, what's in it for me? And all these years later, you call Yankee games. You host a, a radio show where you talk about the Yankees a lot. You live in a sports world. I say this with total respect. How are you not sick of it? Because I love baseball so much. And I, I also realize, I mean, how fortunate I am. I mean, how many people probably want to be the Yankee announcer? And every game is different. So it's not like it all runs together. Every single game you could see. I mean, this year I saw three triple plays. I'd never seen a triple play before. I never called a triple play. So that's kind of neat. So I, I always find the wonder in baseball. So I don't ever get bored of it. Sometimes, though, I wonder is 
am I doing enough with my life that matters? You know, after the, the last election cycle, I was so into everything, read everything, read all these books. And I feel like there's something else there that I could do that might be of more import. And then you have people tell, tell you, you know what you do, what you do is important because it takes us away from that stuff that makes people miserable. You know, for three hours a day, it's our respite. So I look at it that way and go, well, maybe I am doing something. It's not like solving cancer, but maybe I'm helping some people every now and then. I had the singer Richard Marks on this uh, show a few weeks ago, and he was saying over the last X number of years, especially when Trump was president, he just found it hard to write songs. Like he just wasn't feeling the same. It was basically, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing here? I'm writing a song about love and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the country's burning. Is that similar to the thoughts you would say you sort of occasionally? We did our show every day when the world shut down with the pandemic. And I'm sitting there going, what? I mean, how could we even joke? Because our show is light. It's about sports and we joke around. It's kind of a guy show, you know, and what are we doing? You know, people are literally dying. What, what are we doing? And it, it brings me back to, you know, when I, I was on the radio doing games with John Sterling uh, at 9-11. And after the week off, we went back and we, um, we started broadcasting games. So the first series the Yankees had was against the White Sox in Chicago. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't get excited. You know, my, my home run call is, you know, see ya, you know, get excited and all that. Couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I felt I was dishonoring people that lost their lives and families that had lost loved ones. So we were on the road for about a week and I was just like sleepwalking through the games. Why am I doing this? Why are we doing this? It's disrespectful. And this was before email and stuff like that really hit. And, uh, there's a bunch of letters at Yankee stadium for me. And I opened them, you know, before a game and people are going, what are you doing? You're, you're the person that makes us get away from this. If you act different then we know the world is different. And so that kind of gets me through stuff like that. But, you know, last year on, you know, I sit here, I do the show right where I'm doing it right now because they still closed our studio. Wow. And uh, I got the TV on over there. I'm watching, you know, the insurrection. And I try to talk about sports, you know, so it's hard, but you know that that's your job. And maybe it does give people a little bit of a distraction. But I don't I mean, I, I don't know if that many people were even listening that day. And I, I really don't care because I wasn't engaged. I was watching the world change on my TV screen. Do you feel comfortable drifting into your inevitably you get the stick to sports, man? I'm not, I'm not listening to you to hear you talk about blah, 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 blah. Is your reaction like, actually, I understand that. And that's fair. Or are you like, fuck you? I kind of want to talk about this a little bit today. Well, I don't talk about like I, I wouldn't talk about the election. I will talk about I mean, anybody who says that sports and, and politics don't intersect, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you avoid that, then you're not you're not being true to what you're talking about. So we talk about that sort of stuff. But I will tell you this, Jeff, during during the pandemic, when people are being quarantined and people are dying and, and some people have a different reality, they don't think that that's really going on. We talked a lot about that because, again, there was no sports going on. So you did have to talk about other things. And I know, I mean, I, I, I've got the numbers. We lost listeners because I'm sorry, the way the world is right now is completely polarized. And if you take one side, then the other side just leaves. See, because that's why people watch MSNBC and people watch Fox because they don't want the news. They want the news that they want. Yep. So they pick and choose. All right. I'm a liberal. I'm going to watch MSNBC. I'm a conservative. I'm going to watch Fox. So we did lose listeners and we lost ratings and I'm fine with it. You know, I'll live. I'm sure my bosses didn't like it. And we continually got don't be political. Don't be political. Don't take sides. And I understand it. I really do understand it because people tune in to us to, to, to laugh and talk about sports. But sometimes the intersection can't be avoided. And I'm not going to avoid it just because I'm afraid that will lose ratings. But all these years later, I used to look down my nose when Michael Jordan said Republicans buy sneakers. I know what he meant. I, I, I absolutely know what he meant. It seems like somewhere along the way during the course of our lifetimes, it used to be right. You go home. All right. I'm going to watch the local news at five, the national news at six. I think that's how it was. And Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather will tell me what is happening in the world. And then I will use my brain and I will decipher that information and decide how I feel about it, right? So gas prices are going up. I'm going to think about that. And now it's just become who's going to tell me exactly what I believe to be true. And there's no self-formulation 
of world takes or even sports takes. It's one of those things in the media, I think, is just has been a real disservice to society. Uh, it's it's terrible. And I've, I've actually you could say when you when you watch the sausage being made. And, you know, the agenda of certain writers and some stuff just isn't right. It's not true. It does make you think, well, this is going on in the real world, too. People are taking a slant on a story that probably doesn't deserve a slant. It probably deserves something right up the middle. And I don't know if we have up the middle anymore. I think even the most independent broadcasters, I mean, we're all human beings, right? And we have feelings about things. And how does that not creep into how we report? So I think it does a disservice to the country. And it's scary because I don't know if we can rein it back in. Let me ask you a question I'm always required to ask. Besides Dennis Quaid, what's your the angriest or the most agitated? It could be your show. It could be as a print reporter or whatever. A subject has been with you in your career. Reggie Jackson was always hard. I remember I was a I was I was going to Fordham and we we somehow got a um a pass to cover the Yankees and I was the sports director of the radio station. I went to Yankee Stadium and, and still I was still in my kind of fan area and I went over to Reggie's locker and he just uh, knew I was there ignored me and uh, he opened up a, a, a box that had cologne in it and like turned around and fired the box toward the middle of the room and it just missed my head. And, uh, you know, Reggie's tough. Reggie is, I don't think he got angry at me, but, you know, that that's an intimidating guy if you're a young person because you could really get crushed and just, just say, what, what, what am I here for? So I had a, a blowout with Joe Torrey, who I'm really good friends with now. I was um, obviously doing the radio, and I also was doing the pre- and post-game on MSG when they had the rights to the Yankees. And uh, I was really close with Buck Showalter. So Joe Torrey one day, this was in April of his first year of 96, he took out um, Paul O'Neill for defense in the seventh inning of a game in Kansas City. So I asked him why, because O'Neill was a plus defender, you know, and he gave me some reason. And I then being the tabloid guy I am at heart, I took the camera over and said to Paul O'Neill, what do you think about being taken out for defense? Well, Joe didn't like that. So the next day I'm in the clubhouse, you know, he's in his office and the whole team is, you know, sitting at their locker and they're about ready to go on the field. And he comes up to me and starts yelling at me. I don't need another Rona Barrett here in the uh, clubhouse. Like every player had no idea who Rona Barrett was. I, yeah. I knew. <laughs> and he's yelling at me. And, and like I said, I can't fight this guy. This is his turf. So I let him say it, let him say it. And then he went out on the field and then I ran after him. And I go, what the hell was that? Because I've heard about you. I heard about you. I heard to watch out for you. I know you're a show Walter guy. I said, a show Walter guy. I said, he got fired. I can't bring him back. He goes, yeah, I heard about you. I said, I don't care what you think about me, Joe. I said, you know why? Because I'm going to be here a lot longer than you. About 12 <laughs> years later, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I, I almost didn't make it, but we, we became much closer. But he just he was told by people not to trust me because I was a Showalter friend. And uh, that, that, was, that got ugly, especially because it's in front of the team. You can't win if it's in front of the team. So I had Wally Matthews on a while ago because Wally Matthews to me was always the perfect example when I was covering baseball of a guy who's just like, fuck it. I'm talking to you. I am not intimidated by you. Right. Are you the same way? Are you, do you have to take a deep breath before you approach Joe Torrey in that situation or Reggie Jackson as a kid? Or are you just like, I'm just here. I don't care. I grew up in, in the South Bronx. So there's a kind of that attitude to me. Not that I was a tough kid or anything, but I don't like to be pushed around, but you do take the deep breath because you don't know how it's going to end. And you know, when you're a broadcaster for the team, you certainly don't want the manager hating your guts. So, but I, I just felt at that time it had to be addressed. And it's kind of funny. Um, he had a terrible movie that came out about his life after 96 of curveballs around uh, along the way. Uh, Joe Torrey did. Yeah. And the writer of the movie asked me to play this guy who was based on me, but it was going to be Michael K. He wanted me to play Michael K. And I said, well, let me see the script. Oh, no. And they wrote it like I was a complete doofus. You know, I'm sitting there like joking around, throwing baseballs or stuff that I would never do. And I told the guy, I said, not only will I not do this, but if you use my name, I'll sue you. I said, this stuff isn't true. And the guy, they made the guy like Steve Lyon or something like that. And I said, perfect name, because you're lying about what that guy is. And wow. 
so that that was that situation. But uh, yeah, that that was that was uncomfortable to say the least because everybody liked Joe Torre, but Joe Torre didn't like me at that time. So that was that was a little odd. One other uh, it, like sometimes I get the hair on the back of my neck standing up. One of the the, the best guys for me in terms of like helping my career was Billy Martin. For some reason, he loved me and would give me stories days before anybody else got them. And Mattingly. Mattingly just trusted me. And when new guys got to the Yankees, he would point to me among all the writers that that's the guy to trust. I mean, it was gold. That was like, you couldn't believe it. Well, one day I wrote something in the, this is after I moved to the Daily News that Donnie didn't like. So there's 30 people around his locker and I'm on the outskirts. And he goes, uh, yeah, and then some asshole wrote something that wasn't true and what a, uh, just made it up, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like steaming. And so he ran out. I didn't have a chance to talk to him. So I'm leaving the ballpark that night. And his wife was there, who I had, had known. And I just said, hey, and I, I, and I you know, rolled past her pretty quickly because I was still steaming. And she pulled me aside. She goes, what's wrong with you? I said, your husband's an ass. She said, what did he do? And I told her. She goes, oh, I'll take care of him. So the next day I come to the ballpark and Mattingly pulls me aside and said, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, man. I shouldn't have done that. I went over the top. I, I'd like to apologize. So that wasn't good enough for me, Jeff. So I said, well, that's really nice of you, Donnie, but you kind of embarrassed me in front of 30 people. Why don't you, you know, apologize in front of those same 30 people? So he looked at me for a second. He said, don't push it, Mike. And he turned away <laughs> and walked in down the dugout. So, I mean, we had a great relationship, but it's just, I, sometimes I do push that little extra bit. Wait, I want to ask you one more thing. You mentioned Reggie Jackson. What you hear a lot through the years with guys like Reggie Jackson or Barry Bonds or whoever is, well, you got to understand he's under a lot of pressure or you got to understand, blah, blah, blah. I don't buy that even remotely. I don't think there's ever no. an excuse to treating people like shit, no matter who you are or what you stand for. And I feel like too often we, and I'm not saying you and I, I'm just saying we, this is the media, we tiptoe around these guys and allow them to treat us that way. And it drives me crazy. Well, yeah, another thing that rubs me the wrong way is people that like pander to the bullies. Yes. You know, when you laugh at a terrible joke by Bobby Knight, you know, <laughs> he, he he looks down at us if, if we do stuff like that. But everybody wants to ingratiate themselves. And I remember something that Dave LaPointe told me many, many years ago. He said, I got to tell you, Mike, you got to really work hard to be a jerk. He said, it's so much easier to be a good guy. He goes, because you got to go out of your way to be a jerk. He goes, and this is the way I look at it. He goes, if you treat everybody well, he goes, and you're an average pitcher, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. He goes, if you pe treat people like crap and you're an average pitcher, you know what? They're going to go after you. He goes, now, if you're great and you suck, doesn't matter whether you treat people good or bad, you, you, you're great or you suck. He said, but everybody's usually average. He goes, and just treating people the right way is the right way to go about life because they'll treat you the right way. You really do have to try to be a jerk. I think it takes a lot of energy. I mean, the old what's the old cliche? It takes so many more muscles to frown than it does to smile. I would much rather be known as Reggie Jackson. Man, he's a great guy. That guy is so nice. Then Reggie Jackson, he had a lot of home runs and he's an Hall of Fame. Like, I would rather my legacy ultimately be, yeah, that guy was a really nice guy. And, you know, it's funny. I, I've had great conversations with Reggie. It's just kind of the mood that he's in. And sometimes he's in a, you know, he's in a crappy mood. And I'm sure he's gone through a lot. But a lot of people have gone through a lot. And I, I've seen a lot of superstars that are on. Derek Jeter never treat people like that, ever. I mean, he didn't give you a lot. But he was always cordial and, and kind and, and considerate. And I think that that's, that's, the way to, that's the way you want to play. Well, listen, man, I am a, uh, I'm a huge admirer of your work. The book is great. It's like a... Uh, it's really Thank joyful. You. It's just really joyful. And you're just a freaking really, really, really great interviewer. And it shows. And uh, I don't know. I don't mean to kiss your ass, but I really do appreciate you doing this. Thank you. And the, the, the funny thing is I started to think about doing that book when I, I had vocal cord surgery. I couldn't speak for six weeks. And one of the books I was reading was Howard Stern Comes Again. Oh, yeah. Where he took out snippets. He didn't run the whole interview. Snippets of interviews that he did. And I started to think that could work with the center stage interviews. And we ran the whole things. I actually think you and Stern have very similar um, attributes as interviewers. I really do. I think he's one of the, in a way, underrated interviewers of all time because people. Oh, he's outstanding. He's so ridiculously good. And you know what, Jeff? Now that people trust him more and don't look at him like, you know, it's dirty to do an interview with him. You see the caliber of guests that he gets and he gets them to open up. And, and also they give him like two, three hours. That's a guy 
that I'm intimidated by? Like somebody asked me the other day, is there anybody that you have wow moments that, you know, I've been in the same room at a charity and Sam, I can't even bring myself to go up to him. He was actually looking at you saying, I can't, I can't talk to Michael K. I'm too intimidated. I just, I, uh, and you know, a lot of the stuff he says about like being, just being uncomfortable. I mean, I'm kind of like that too. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at a more famous, successful version of myself. And I just can't bring myself to talk to him. Don't you think one of the myths of this all is like, all right, you see famous people or you see people in the spotlight. And the assumption is I can't talk to them because I'm kind of shy. And a lot of times those people are actually really shy and just have been thrust into this world and have to kind of fight it, but are not comfortable. When I tell people I'm shy, they laugh at me and they go, well, you're shy. You're tough for four hours on the radio. It's my job. And I'm not looking at the person that I'm talking to. It's like, it's an abstract thought that there's, you know, tens of thousands of people listening. I, I never start conversations ever. I'm just, I'm, I, I always have this great fear, Jeff, of being blown off. Yeah. I, I, I used to work yeah. with a guy named Bob Page at MSG. Mm-hmm. Like I've never been a guy when I was single that I would go up in front of a velvet rope and go, I'm Michael K. Cause my biggest fear is so. And Bob Page, I was once with him at the China club, walked up to the room and said, I'm Bob Page of the MSG network. And the guy goes, yeah, he goes, you want me in there. Believe me, you want me in there. It'd be a mistake not to let me in. And I was like, I was cringing. I couldn't bring myself to ever do anything like that. So I guess I'm shot. Wait, I'll ask you a final question. Do you, uh, so the guy, he, uh, he wants to have coffee next week and talk sports. You want to come? I can, I can uh, get you in, loop you in if you want to come along and we can. All I got to fly 3000 miles and have, have <laughs> coffee, yeah, which in? I've never had in my life with a person. I don't know. I'm going to, it's a hard pass, Jeff. Oh man. I'm hurt. <laughs> uh, well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I really seriously. This is fun. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Michael K, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Michael on Twitter at RealMichaelK and buy Center Stage wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and dig Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember... Keep writing.